Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true, that it is alive. And we are so grateful as we just sang that your way is better. Yahweh is better. So as we open up your word today, Lord, I pray that it brings life. I pray, Lord, that your word today speaks to us in ways that we never imagined. And I pray your word speaks the truth of your character, your holiness, and that you would give me strength to communicate it in a way that is exactly what you want me to say and in a way that helps us follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in John chapter 17. If you are uh, part of Revolution Church, you know that we've been in John for quite some time. Just, just curious, uh, how many folks are here because they were just in town for the weekend visiting family? You can just give me applause. So basically, you shipped your family out already. Okay, good. Okay. Um, well, if you're, if you're here today because your family dragged you to church, I get it. I didn't go to church for the first 45 years of my life. Now you can't get me out of church. So I am excited to talk to you today about God's word. John 17, it is Jesus's longest prayer. It's called the high priestly prayer. Last week, we heard Jesus praying for himself. Next week, we'll hear Jesus praying for future disciples. Today, we're going to open up the word to John chapter 17, verses 11 through 15. Jesus prays for his disciples. But check this out. He's not just praying for the 11 that were still remaining with him. This was 2,000 years ago. We were the future disciples. But now that we're followers of Jesus, it turns out that in these verses, Jesus is praying for us. Jesus is praying for us. Yeah, okay. Maybe I'll put it a different way if you're still in that food coma from Thursday. College football, it's kind of a big deal down here in the South and in many parts of the country. But if your favorite college football coach, maybe it's Kirby Smart, maybe it's Mark Rick, maybe it's Dabo Sweeney, maybe it's Nick Saban, Maybe it's Shane Beamer from the University of South Carolina. I'm a Clemson fan. That's why I had the twitch. Sorry. We didn't do well yesterday. If they came to your house today and they put their hand on your shoulder and said, how can I pray for you? You'd be going bananas on social media. You're not going to believe who prayed for me. Jesus was praying for you in these verses. That, that's, what, that's what I want to get at today. And if you're new to Revolution, we jump right into Scripture. And there is Scripture outside of John that backs this up. So I'm going to put Romans chapter 8 up on the screen to start out. It says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. And that word interceding means to literally converse with, petition, plead with, make a request to. So check this out. Jesus died for our sins, took the penalty that we deserve on the cross, goes to the Father's right hand, and pleads with him on our behalf. That's incredible. I've got friends who are prayer warriors in my life. They pray for me all the time. My wife and I have friends who pray for us all the time. Maybe you pray for your church. Maybe you pray for your pastors, and that's awesome. And if you haven't prayed for your pastors, start today. It's a great time to do it. And all of that is wonderful. But here we have the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, praying for us. When, when people pray for each other, 
There's power in that. And I don't know if you have people in your life that pray for you. I don't know if you're praying for other people in your life, but it's a powerful thing. There was a, a mega church pastor back in the 1800s, back in 18 bubba bum His name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He was a preacher in England, Metropolitan Tabernacle, Tabernacle, or Tabernacle. I've heard it both ways. Either way, it's fine. He, he would take people down to the boiler room of the church. He called it the power plant. This is where the heat was. And he would open the door, and there would be hundreds of people praying for the church. There is great power in that. But these verses are going to tell us something so remarkable about the character of Jesus and his love for us that before we get into the scripture, I just want you to grasp this. This is Jesus's darkest hour. He is about to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the last thing he does. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be tried. He's going to be convicted. He's going to be tortured. He's going to be beaten. His flesh is going to be torn from his back. His ribs are going to be broken. He's going to be nailed to a piece of wood. And he's going to die by asphyxiation. And he knows this. It is his darkest hour. And his mind is set on you. That should floor you. That's just the intro. We're going to get to have a front row seat here at the most incredible conversation in the history of the world. Don't you just love it when your quarterback's mic'd up on the sidelines and you get to hear what he's saying to the players? Isn't that fun? Well, Jesus is mic'd up here. And, and we're going to get to hear the greatest conversation in the history of the world. God the Son is talking to God the Father. Let's watch. Verse 11. Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, meaning the disciples and meaning us, and I am coming to you. So many times we've seen Jesus tell the disciples he's not going to be around anymore. He wants the disciples to know that so they're not surprised when Jesus dies. He wants the disciples to know that so they don't think that he failed in some way. But here he's telling the father, hey, I got these guys and I've been with them for three years and I'm not going to be with them anymore. I'm not going to have my physical presence with them anymore. I'm coming to you. They're going to need some help. They're going to need some prayer. They're going to need everything that you can give them so they don't fall away. He says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. You ever start a prayer with, Heavenly Father, I'm coming to you today in reverence. We come to you today in need. It's not what Jesus is doing. He's saying, Father, I'm coming home. I'm actually coming home to you. He's had an unreal three years. Three years of being rejected. Three years of being maligned. And he finally gets to go to the place where he was with the Father since before the foundation of the earth. That's why he is anticipating this so much. You may have had a really rough three years, and I think many of us had a rough three years. We had COVID. We had George Floyd. We had a political season. We had conflict. And, and maybe, maybe Thursday was the first time you went home in three years and you were anticipating that. Or maybe you're looking forward to going home for Christmas. Imagine Jesus and the anticipation he has to go home to the Father. Verse 11 continues. 
Holy Father, keep them. That's the title of today's message. Keep them. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. So he addresses the Father in this incredible title, Holy Father. That is not a reference to the 266 popes who are given that title, Holy Father, that has nothing to do with this. This is only in the gospel according to John. And this points to two things about Jesus's relationship with the Father. Number one, God's holiness, God's set-apartness. So Jesus has this incredible reverence for God, and then he has this awesome family relational aspect to the Father. So he calls him Holy Father. So we want to know that this is how Jesus, the Son of God, is referencing his Father, our eternal Father. And he says, keep them. What an amazing thing to ask the creator of the universe to do for the disciples and to do for us. Keep them. It's a Greek word. It means to guard, to protect to hold tight to. Let's say I had a watch, and it was given to me by my grandfather. And I asked one of you to hold this watch. I'm going away. I'll be back, but I'm, I'm going away. I would say in the imperative form, I would say as a command, keep this watch until I get back. And you may or may not be able to do that. I know in our house, when we put something away for keepsake, for safekeeping, we forget where we put it. <laughs> okay, we're not, the, we're not the only ones. We're, not, we're still looking for a bracelet. I have no idea where it is. But this is the king of kings. This is Jesus asking his perfect, holy, righteous father, who is infallible, to keep us to keep the disciples. And since God's character is infallible, he's immutable, he never changes, he's omniscient, he knows everything, he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful, he's omnipresent, he's everywhere always, he's not going to let us slip through his hands. It's physically impossible for us, for him to let us go, let alone forget where he put us. And Jesus says, keep them. Keep them in your name. That's a big deal. Keep them in your name. Back in those days, a name carried a lot of weight. As a matter of fact, in Psalm 20, it says, some of y'all believe in chariots. Some of y'all believe in horses. But we believe in the power of the name of God. The name of the Lord, our God. Medieval times. You hear this all through movies. There would be the storming of a castle, and there would be a, a guy leading that. He would be generally on a horse, wearing armor in his best Monty Python voice. would say, I demand that you lower the gate in the name of the king. <laughs> He's not with the king. He's speaking with the power and the authority of the king. And that's what Jesus is doing right here, implying the power of the Father, the infinite name of the Father, praying the whole character of God that I just went through, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, all of that. He's praying that and asking God to keep us with that power. Tis but a flesh wound. Thank you. So why, why is Jesus asking God to do this? Why is he saying keep us? The world. He's saying keep us from the world because we do not have the power in our own strength to do that. Have you ever, have you ever tried to, in your own strength, stay away from the schemes of the devil? 
doesn't work, does it? We can try as hard as we want, but we have the power of the Holy Spirit, and now here Jesus is pleading with God to keep us in his name. The infinite power in the name that the Father represents. So let's go back to the watch analogy. We are Jesus's keepsake for God's namesake. We are Jesus's keepsake by the power of his namesake. That's amazing. That's what he thinks of us. That's what God thinks of you. He wants to keep you forever. And he says, keep them in your name that they may be one even as we are one. That's good. Jesus is petitioning the Father to keep his disciples as one as he and the Father are one. But it doesn't mean sameness. Completely different. I don't want to be a part of a church where we all look alike, sound alike, talk alike. Sameness is not what he's talking about here. He's talking about oneness. Jesus and the Father are one. They are both God, but they are in different persons. They're both God, but exist in different forms. Jesus in perfect submission to the Father, God in perfect authority to the Son. But they're both in oneness because they're both for the Father's glory. Jesus wants the family of God, us, to be as one as he is with the Father. Most famous prayer in the Old Testament. It is called the Shema. It's a Hebrew prayer. It's in Deuteronomy. Every Jewish family would repeat this several times a day. People still do it today. It would be the first prayer that a Jewish child would learn in Hebrew school. It was the first prayer that I learned in Hebrew school. I don't remember how old I was, but it goes like this. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear. That's what Shema means. It means hear or listen or obey. Hear, Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Echad. Last time I, I taught you how to say Happy New Year in Hebrew. You remember it? Not one person remembers it. Lashana Tova, you remember that part? Am I a revolution church? Because <laughs> I really thought I was. I saw the sign. Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to keep going. I'm going to teach you another Hebrew word. Ready? The word for one is echad. Say it after me. Echad. Okay, got to be more guttural, like you're... Like you're you're coughing something up from Thursday. <laughs> Echad. Excellent, excellent. It's really important because it refers to the oneness and the perfect union of the Father. See, A.W. Tozier, you may know him. He wrote a, a book called The Attributes of God. A.W. Tozier says that Jesus is perfectly tuned to the Father. And he says that we should be perfectly tuned, not to each other, not in our sameness, but we should be perfectly tuned to another standard. We should be perfectly tuned to the standard of God because our oneness isn't based on what we think. Our oneness is based on who we are in Christ. And who are we? We're sinners. We're all sinners. Our oneness is based on that. Our, our oneness is is based on our need for mercy. Our oneness is based on our need for grace, the unmerited favor of God. Our oneness is based on our need for a relationship with the Father. That's where our oneness comes. Because we've all got the same story. We've got just different details. We were all once dead, but God our stories are the same. Our oneness is based on Jesus. That's why the, the best example for oneness is in the Bible is marriage. 
Marriage is not for unity's sake. Marriage is for oneness' sake, to become one, because my wife and I are different. We think differently. We act differently. We look different. We talk different. She has a little bit of an Alabama accent. I'm from Philadelphia. Here's a pro-marriage tip for you. Pro tip, you don't have to use this. It is a lot easier to bear with one another when you are focused on your oneness in Jesus. Who's writing that down? I see one guy writing it down. There you go. Okay, good. Our oneness isn't tied to our political views. Our oneness isn't tied to our thoughts on social issues. Our oneness isn't tied to our socioeconomic uh, status. Our oneness is tied to what Jesus did for us on the cross. Our oneness is tied to that. Our oneness is tied to the fact that when he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. It is done. So you could say that this prayer, that we would be one, is tied to Jesus's doneness. So, point on the screen, our oneness is found in Jesus's doneness. Not sure it's good English, but as Pastor Jason always says, not good English, but great theology. Our oneness is found in Jesus's doneness. Because oneness is all over the gospel according to John. We're just not making this up in chapter 17. You're going to hear a lot more of it as we go through John chapter 17. But in John 14, Jesus says, on that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. That's oneness. John 10, the Father and I are one. When Jesus said that to the religious leaders, it didn't go well. They wanted to kill him after that, but it points to Jesus' oneness with the Father. John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me as I am you. It's oneness. So here's an exercise. Think of somebody that is a believer in Jesus that you disagree with on some things. Maybe, maybe you had that person over for Thanksgiving. Maybe there was a conflict over the last few years. Maybe you had a difference of opinion over COVID or the response that people had to it. Whatever the differences are, what if, crazy thought, what if we gave that stuff to Jesus to handle and we thought of that person with the same oneness and need of mercy and grace that we have. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that change the family dynamics a little bit? A little bit, yep. Take it a step further. What if they don't know Jesus? And you're diametrically opposed on everything. What if we looked at that person in the need of mercy and grace like we need it? That, change, that changes my next trip to see my family, that's for sure. Next, Jesus says to the Father what he has been doing here on earth. This is verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. He's talking about Judas. Remember that scene in John 13 where Judas leaves the building. So Jesus has, Judas has not slipped out of Jesus' hands we talked about that before. Judas was never a follower of Jesus. And verse 12 ends with the scripture might be fulfilled. So, so we see here what Jesus has been doing for us and for the disciples. He's been praying for us. He's been praying. I'm going to quote Tim Hawkins, the comedian here. He's praying a hedge of protection over us. That's what he's doing. Have you ever seen the Tim Hawkins bit? 
I'm pretty sure I'm at Revolution, okay? All right, well, Tim Hawkins is a comedian, and he talks about that prayer. If you, maybe you've never heard somebody pray a, a hedge of protection over you. And he's, he goes on to say he doesn't think that Satan's greatest enemy is landscaping. But, but praying a hedge of protection, it's, it's a real thing. It comes out of Job. Job chapter one, God says, hey, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, oh, I thought you placed a hedge around him. Hedge is very important in, in the Old Testament because they wouldn't have built stone walls to protect. They wouldn't have built wooden walls to protect because there wasn't a lot of wood. That's why most nativity scenes that you see are wrong. Jesus would have been in a stone manger. But there were wild animals. There were lions. There were leopards. There were bears. Thank you. At least you've seen The Wizard of Oz. Okay. And in order to keep the wild animals out and the protected, see what I did there? The protected ones in, they would, they would grow these thorny bushes, very thick thorny bushes so the wild animals couldn't get in and the Sheep couldn't get out. We've got hedges in our parking lots at our locations. They're for your safety. Did you know that? You know that one that's all the way across the driveway so you don't get hit by a car? The one you walk through every Sunday? <laughs> the one that has eight signs that say, for your safety, please use the crosswalk? The one next to the guy on the crosswalk saying, hey, for your safety, use the crosswalk. We've got hedges. So hedges, are, it, it, it's a real thing. And when Jesus is praying for your protection, I want you to know it's out of his infinite love for you. And he says it's because the scripture must be fulfilled. So check this out. God makes these promises. How many do you think he fulfills? Some of them? Say all of them. All of them, because he's infallible. That's his nature. That's why Jesus prayed for the disciples and for us in the powerful, mighty name of God, because God doesn't change. This references Psalm 41.9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. He's talking about Judas. So there's hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament, fulfilled by Jesus, and in Jesus' darkest hour, don't miss this, what's he saying to the Father? Scripture. He is speaking God's word to God the Father who breathed out the Scriptures. How encouraging is that for us? Because I don't know about you. I've had some dark hours. If you have not been in your darkest hour, you will be. There's some encouragement. <laughs> but you will face trials. You will face hardships. We'll get to that in just a little bit. You will face these things, and you are going to need the strength and the power of the name of God and the word of God to get through those things. And here is our example. Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, is using Scripture to speak to the Father. Hallelujah. That's why it's so important for us to memorize verses. So important to have this in our hearts. So when we're in that trial, we can speak the word of God. I don't know about you, I, I struggle with memorization. Am I the only one here? Yeah. But then I realized, I know the starting lineup of the 1977 Dodgers. I know every gold medalist in the 100-meter dash from 1964 in Tokyo to 1984 in LA. How, how does that happen? And then I say, well, I can't memorize scripture. I probably can. And you can too. Let's get to verse 13. Jesus says, but now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Oh, 
This is awesome. We've talked so much about joy and how joy is tied to our obedience in the Lord. Last time I spoke, I said, hey, what if our joy was tied to our evangelism and we gave someone something that we have because we have so much joy in it and we get joy by watching them get it? That's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying because his joy is directly tied to his obedience to the Father. Did you know that Jesus perfectly obeys the Father? He does. So he's saying, I got this joy in my perfect obedience to the Father, and I want y'all to have that same joy in the Father that I have. Don't miss that. Jesus loves you so much, and he is out for your joy so much. He wants you to have the same joy in the Father that he has in the Father. Let me bring it back down to college football for you, <laughs> okay? Y'all root for a team, right? Just yell it out. Go dogs. Okay, we'll use, we'll use the dogs as an example. Anybody who roots for the Bulldogs? have a son or a daughter that roots for a different team? Yes, isn't that heartbreaking? Yes, it, it's like the worst thing ever. You're experiencing a hardship. You're gonna need the word of God. <laughs> so imagine though, if your son rooted for the Bulldogs and experienced the same joy that you have in your team that you have. Wouldn't that be incredible? Okay, I know it's a pretty silly analogy, but it works. It works because that's how much Jesus wants you to have the same joy that he has in the Father. And when we enjoy God, it can't help but overflow. It can't help but just exude from our pores. Our joy in God is seen by the world and how we love them. So when we are loving people, they are seeing that overflow that Jesus was praying for 2,000 years ago before he went to the cross. Mind blown. Verse 14, you ready? Say yes. Okay, good. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So that word, word, is the same word as John used in the beginning of the gospel according to John, when he talks about Jesus being the word. The word was one. It's the word logos. Jesus is the logos of God. Jesus is is speaking here, saying that part of his mission is to pass God's word on to us. The full revelation of God, as we heard last week, comes to us in this. And in keeping us, in this prayer to keep us, we get more of God. If we're not kept, we don't get this, and we don't get more of God. So Jesus is saying, protect them, keep them. I've prepared them by giving them your word. Is Jesus giving us anything else? Is he making stuff up that's outside of God's word? Is he saying, I know what God's word says, but you know, it seems right to me, or I think we should do it this way. Is he doing any of that? No, no, he's giving us only God's word, and he's passing that on to us. So what do you think we should be passing on? God's word. Because there's a verse in Proverbs, I want you to remember, it's Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. Wow. You ever have the thought, well, it seems right to me? Or you know what I think? Run from those thoughts. <laughs> I've had those thoughts a lot. I have to run from them because they're not from God. He wants us to pass on his word, and that's why Jesus only uses God's words. 
He's using God's words to speak to God. So husbands, what do you think we should speak over our wives? What we think they should do? What we think our marriage should be? What we think our lives should be? Ephesians 5, 26 says, wash them in the word. Not what we think, but in God's word, what he thinks. Parents, train up a child by what we think. By what we think is right. How about train up a child in what the word says? We just sang about it. His way is better. Yahweh is better. And if we know the Father, and we abide in Jesus, and we follow his word, Jesus says in that verse, the world's gonna hate us. We know that. So he's saying, protect them. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. How many times have we heard recently that God isn't going to take us out before our trials, isn't gonna take us out before our hardships? He's gonna leave us in because we've got work to do. We have been saved to live sent out. That's why I always refer to this building as a building, 125 Union Hill Trail. If you're in Jasper, hey Jasper, we love you. 689 North Main Street in Jasper. It's a building, it's a base camp for us to be sent out to be light in the world. And if we're taken out of the world, we're not going to be able to complete the mission that Paul talks about in Romans chapter one. That mission is to eagerly, unashamedly, and under obligation, share the good news of Jesus Christ to a dying world. D.A. Carson, a modern day theologian, said the Christian's task, excuse me, the Christian's task is not to be withdrawn from the world nor be confused with the world. So we're not supposed to be the same as the world, but we're still supposed to be in it. Sip. There's so much to tie together here because there's a lot in those verses. There are probably three or four different sermons in those verses, but I'm gonna tie this together. I'm gonna take verse 11 and tie it to verse 15. So in verse 11, Jesus asked the Father to keep them, remember the title of the message, to keep them, and keep them in something. What was that? In his name, excellent. Keep them in the power of his name. In verse 15, Jesus is asking the Father to keep them, but keep them from something. Keep them from the evil one. So according to this, how are we kept from? We're kept in. How are we kept from the evil one? We are kept in the mighty power of the name of God the Father. So the way we are kept, was it up on the screen already? There it is. The way we are kept from is to be kept in. The way we are kept from is to be kept in. I do get a bonus for using prepositions well. (laughs) I don't. Now, check this out. Oneness ties together. Did you know that Satan is a fan of oneness? Oh yeah, celebrates oneness's entire catalog. But not the same oneness as we were talking about. Not the same oneness in our need of grace and mercy. Satan's a fan of oneness in the sense of aloneness. Because if Satan can get us alone, if Satan can get us away from the body of Christ, If Satan can get us away from this, he will have a field day because his oneness is based 
on the individual. His oneness is based on me being alone. His oneness is based on you being alone. Jesus' oneness is based on the together that we have in the gospel, the togetherness that we have in our need for him. So here's another point. Jesus' desire for oneness is other-centered. Satan's desire for oneness is self-centered. And if we are self-centered, when, man, when I am self-centered, I am so susceptible to the schemes of the devil. It is so easy for me to get off track. It is so easy for me to go off mission when I am focusing on myself. But when I am focusing on the love and the joy that we all have together in our relationship with Jesus Christ, I am not susceptible to the schemes of the devil. And I remember the scripture that Jesus is praying for us to be kept from. So how do we do that? Coming to the end of the message. How do we do that? First of all, we remember what I just said. Remember that Jesus is interceding. He's pleading with the Father to keep us, to hold us tight. And we know for a fact that nothing will slip out of his hands. Second thing, how do we do this? Right here. He gave us his word. He gave us his inspired word. These are all of the things that we need. The full revelation of God is in here. Go back to what I said about husbands. Husbands, how can we wash our wives in the word if we're not in the word? If, if you don't have a Bible, find me after the gathering. I will get you a Bible. I love giving Bibles away. I love giving God's word away. If you want some recommendations on a study Bible, contact me. I'll give you some recommendations. I'll tell you about the Bibles that I've used over the last 16 years. Maybe you want to ask for a Bible for Christmas. And if you want a great place to get Bibles, christianbook.com. We don't get a kickback. I'm just telling you, it's a great place to find Bibles. I wasn't even going to talk about that, but get me talking about the word of God, and it gets very exciting. And finally, how do we do this? How do we stay centered on our oneness with each other? How do we remain kept from the evil one? So God gives us the protection. God gives us his word. Guess what else he gives us? This. He gives us the body of Christ. He gives us each other. He gives us this church, this amazing church here in Canton and Jasper and Kenya. And he gives us thousands and thousands of other churches where we can experience oneness together. Church was never meant to show up once a month for a pep talk. Church was never meant to show up twice a year. Speaking of twice a year, we've got one of those times coming up. Got like 23 Christmas gatherings. Go to the website, go to the app, find out which one's gonna be best for you. But church was meant for the building up of the body of Christ for your edification, to sit under the preached word so that you could be encouraged to go out and live a life on mission, to live a life sent. The church was created for that, to use the gifts that God has given you. God has given each one of you a gift. I know hundreds of you. I know hundreds of your gifts but every single person in this room, every single person in Jasper, every single person gathered online has a gift for you to use to build up the body of Christ as one. I would encourage you, jump in on that. This isn't a message on serving, but I think the application is there. 
to live in the full oneness of who we are as a body of a church, use the gifts God's given you. If you haven't gone through welcome track and signed up to serve somewhere, that's where you're gonna build relationships. That's where you're gonna have people in your life that are gonna pray for you. That's where you're gonna have people in your life that you're gonna be able to pray for. Maybe you wanna join the boiler team. (laughs) Maybe you wanna be in the prayer room. Find somebody on the prayer team. Come talk to me afterwards. Get connected to a small group. You're not gonna know everybody in the church, but some people will know you and you will know others. The protection that Jesus is asking the Father for, for us, comes in our oneness and in our togetherness, not in our aloneness that prevents us from being with each other. Satan's gonna have a field day. That's why 1 Peter chapter five is so clear. There is an enemy prowling around like a what? Roaring lion, searching for someone to devour. And he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Know what God says, know his plan. Because Satan knows our plan better than we know his plan. We know our plan, but God has given us this. He's given us the local church. He's given us his promises. But the way to accomplish all of this is to remain in Jesus. We've been talking about that for many chapters, to remain, to abide in Jesus. But maybe you aren't there. Maybe you haven't trusted in Jesus and and you would like to be protected like that. You would like to be kept from the enemy. You wanna be out of your aloneness. Hey, I spent 45 years in that aloneness by myself in the grips of the enemy and it was exhausting. Maybe you're just exhausted. So I'm gonna give you an opportunity to trust in Jesus today. It'll be the greatest decision you ever made in your entire life. Does God promise that there won't be trials? No. Does God promise there won't be hardships? No. But he does promise if you're in Christ to keep you, to hold fast to you. You are his beloved keepsake. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is amazing that we get to open up your word, that we get together to gather together in our oneness, in our need for mercy and grace, in our need for a relationship with you. Father, for those who are here who are in need of your mercy and grace that have not trusted in you, that have not said yes to the invitation to trust in Jesus. We're gonna ask that you move mightily in their lives right now. So if that is you, you can repeat this prayer after me. It's a simple prayer. Heavenly Father, I am tired in my aloneness. Oh, I might have friends and family, but I don't have this relationship with Jesus that will keep me forever. So I believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that you and Jesus are one. And I wanna be one with the body of believers. I trust that you raised Jesus from the dead and that he sits at your right hand now, pleading for us. Will you save me? Everybody's eyes should be closed. I don't know why we do that in church, but we do. 
But I want you, if you trusted in Jesus for the first time, to raise your hand and keep it raised. Keep it raised. Don't be, don't be afraid, don't be shy. Say, hey, I'm trusting in Jesus today. Our prayer team is here. They just came out of the boiler room and they have got God's word for you. Thank you. They wanna give you God's word because it's alive. And now you can say for the rest of your life that you're gonna be kept. You are God's keepsake for his namesake. And for those who have already trusted in Jesus, what an incredible piece of encouragement to go out with today. That we are that loved. That in Jesus' darkest hour, and I know that in my darkest hour, I'm not thinking about others. But in Jesus' darkest hour, he was thinking about us. That encouragement to keep going, to keep pressing on through the trial, to keep pressing on through the hardship, to keep focused on God's word, to have the centrality of the local church as part of our lives, to have this book inform our decisions, inform how we lead our families, inform how we work, inform how we go to school. Because Father, if these are the words that your son spoke to you, we recognize the importance of speaking it to others speaking it to ourselves. Give us strength to do that. We love you and we praise you. And we are so thankful on this week where Thanksgiving prayers abound. We're thankful for who you are and your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.